Hey guys, this is Nathan and this is episode number 17 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, how you doing? Thank you so much for tuning in. It's great to have you back. And thank you for showing up every week and listening to the show. I love that about you. Thank you for sharing it on all of the socials. I'm in LA this week at a coaching intensive and it's a training for coaches. It's called an intensive for a reason. You don't get out of the room without going and doing a lot of deep inner work. At one point I was lying on the ground for about 25 minutes sobbing my eyes out in tears, which came from, uh, this is a little bit vulnerable, it, it came from a space of someone really challenged me that I really bring a lot of masculine energy to everything, but I don't really show a feminine side or there's like a fear that I, you know, have of showing my feminine side. I don't know what you feel when you hear that, but when someone says like, I, oh, they want to see more of my feminine side, I'm like, Ugh, no, I don't want to show that. That's weak, that's woo-woo, that's like, fuck, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. But I, I just really felt the weight of that. I felt the weight of having to be a man and being masculine all the time. And it took me back to starting my career and being gay in a manly, masculine industry. I really didn't want my being gay to influence that. I wanted it to be known as a really great pilot i didn't want to be known as the gay pilot and so i think i really overcompensated i made sure i didn't show any feminine side no weakness nothing that looked gay whatever that means and just only really brought this really strong masculine presence which i really feel the weight of that now because this woman i was talking to she explained to me like man masculine energy is doing feminine energy is being and i'm a really good doer like i can make things happen and i do a lot but i'm not so good at being and what being means is just surrender to the moment just being in the moment being in flow with whatever happens being more loving being more accepting being more compassionate and those are all really beautiful traits that I love but I really because of the story of having to close off that feminine side and not let anyone see it for really for being for fear of being wounded for fear of someone you know for exposing myself and someone making fun of me or hurting me in some way but I see now that those traits are a really beautiful side of me and those are things that I really 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 want to grow and value I have no idea how to do it that's one of the beautiful things about uh learning a new insight is you just need to see the insight become aware of it and then and then see what happens so I wanted to share that with you guys but it was a very deep insight for me and I'm excited to see where it goes another thing I've committed during the intensive to have 100 powerful coaching conversations with whoever over the next 90 days this is a pretty rare opportunity to have a one-on-one powerful coaching conversation with me I don't have any slots available to work with me, so it's not. Uh, this is not an introduction into working with me. This is just an opportunity for me to share my gift and also deepen my practice by coaching people that maybe I wouldn't normally coach. So if you would like to experience a very deep, powerful conversation with me, it would last about 90 minutes to two hours, reach out to me by email. My email is nathan at nathanseward.com and just put, uh, powerful conversation in the subject line so I know what it's about or you can reach out to me on Facebook if you like and we can see if we can make something happen this week on the show I had a lovely conversation with a guy called Doug Stewart Doug lives in Raleigh uh, North Carolina in America he is a motivational speaker and he has a great story he uh, had dyslexia and ADD and other learning problems growing up and he talks about how he dealt with that and how he overcame a lot of that stuff he ended up running his family business but made a decision to leave the family business which put him out of touch with his family they weren't happy about it so he talks about how he honored what he truly wanted to do whilst having to 
maybe uh, lose some of his family for a few years and a whole bunch of other great stuff. Uh, Doug is actually a certified facilitator for Dale Carnegie's training. Dale Carnegie wrote the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And so Doug is actually an instructor in how to facilitate the skills of the uh, Dale Carnegie training, which I think is incredible. I love that book. So we had a great conversation, as always. You guys know how it goes. I asked him about his upbringing and what happened there. So that's where we start the conversation. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Doug Stewart. Yeah, so I was I was born in in a very um, rural town in North Carolina, right right about an hour south of Raleigh. Um, grew up in a, I mean, a a good family. You know, we were very <laughs> country, <laughs> very very sort of simple. Um, grew up in church, Christian education. You know, the 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 real problem that my parents and my teachers and my uh, my pastors <laughs> and really every every adult that was around was people would always say of how active I was. And active was really sort of code for unruly, and we don't know what to do with this kid. And so. You know, that sort of was basically my entire childhood. I was I was just kind of a wild kid. I was very curious. I like to play by myself um, and I like to, you know, punch other kids for no reason and just then disrupt things. And so when I was about 11 years old, my, my mother took me to have me tested by the state. You know, she she really didn't know how to deal with me. My teachers didn't know how to deal with me. So they figured that maybe some some test or some diagnosis would help. Um, up to that point, I had been in some some pretty hardcore uh, speech therapy as as well as like some of the some of the special classes or the classes where they would just take you out of the classroom so that the other kids would have an opportunity to learn. <laughs> and uh, this this test when I was 11 years old sort of sort of gave me this this sort of ginormous list of deficiencies, uh, some of which were things like dyslexia and ADD. One that was really strange was like this rare form of narcolepsy um, and and just sort of a whole myriad of other things. If maybe if I didn't, it's a sleep disorder, right? That's a, that's a sleep disorder. So I would I would literally most people when they think of that particular um, deficiency, they think of the movie Deuce Bigelow Mel Gigolo. <laughs> you seen that? Yeah. Okay, where where the girl just like falls asleep and they have to tie her hair to like, the wall. <laughs> Honest to goodness, and that that exactly is what would happen. I almost couldn't get my driver's license at sixteen because I was ju- I would just like out of nowhere just like fall asleep, which which I found a little bit later in life. A lot of it was environmental. A lot of it was because I wasn't eating the right things. I wasn't getting the right rest, and, and I wasn't working inside of my strength. So I was I was doing things that really wore me down and wore me down quickly, and I didn't know how to manage that sort of as a kid. Um, but the, the most devastating part of this test that I was that I was given was in the uh, in the writing my alphabet part, which is one of the parts that I actually read during my TEDx talk. Um, that part told me that as an 11 year old, I could not write my alphabet on my own. You know, I would reverse the S. So I would mess up the T. I couldn't I couldn't write the Z. And so, you know, I'm 11 years old and I can't write my alphabet. And it didn't help that. I was also like head and shoulders taller than any of the other kids. Now I'm six seven, um, and I've always been way taller. So like when you look at my my class pictures with me and the like second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I look more like the teacher's assistant <laughs> than than like a, an actual student. And so I, I went through I went through my entire you know childhood with with this like burden of like I've been I've been given this this stuff that I don't want. I I can't get ahead you know, academically. Um, so the only thing that I really have is athletics. And like I said, I was blessed to, to have some height and some athletic ability. 
Um, but from the time that I was in first grade to the time I graduated high school, I never passed a grade with by my own merit. Like I was either, you know, I went to summer school or I was pushed through because the teacher literally couldn't imagine a, wor- a world in which um, I was in her class again. And so I really lived in this really deep victim mentality um, and and figured that it wasn't that I was lazy. I just I just couldn't. And so I, I didn't try. And was there a treatment once you did all the tests for dys- dyslexia and ADD and reformed yeah. epilepsy? Was it like, right, this guy pump him full of drugs, give him all this treatment? Is it they kind of yeah, the, the main thing that they did is they really tried to limit, like, they tried to limit my diet, which meant, you know, no sugar, no candy, no soda. That lasted about, you know, 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they put me on, put me on a pretty strong dose of Ritalin, which turned me into an absolute zombie, took my, took my appetite away. And I just, I hated it. And about the, about after I'd say a week or two of taking it, um, they would give it to me and send me outside to the water fountain. And I would, I would, I would slip it into the grate of the water fountain and I wouldn't take it. And then I just try my best to, to look like that I had taken it. <laughs> That's amazing. And then I, I did that for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, I told, uh, I got caught doing it. My mom got really upset because at that time that, that drug was pretty expensive for us. Um, and she, you know, she was really, she was really frustrated. She asked me, you know, why, why in the world would you be throwing this away? If we're buying this, we're spending this money to help you. And my comment to her as, you know, an 11 year old was, I don't want to live my life medicated. And if I have to be medicated to be accepted, then maybe I just shouldn't be accepted. And, you know, I think that was one of the turning points for her and really broke her heart. It's a profound uh, insight for an 11 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I think part of I mean the truth of the matter was it just made me feel like garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 that was I knew that that would tug at my mom's heartstrings. So maybe it wasn't like as profound as it was my way of manipulating myself out of the situation. I don't I don't I don't want to take too much credit for for how um you know philosophical or, or prophetic I was as an eleven year old. But you know she um she really sort of jumped on my side and we really fought against the fought against the system and tried to find ways for me to, you know, sort of cope. And it just so turned out I was in a small town in a small school that didn't know how to manage it. And that's, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I got treated badly. I got treated, um, you know, the, the, the way people are sort of just manifest manifested itself. So when they didn't know how to manage it, they would get upset and they'd get frustrated and they'd get angry. And, you know, I, don't, I certainly don't hold that against them. It didn't serve me the way it needed to, but the truth is, is they didn't have the things in place to be able to serve me. So, um, luckily, you know, the basketball thing really, really saved me until, until I got to college. Wow. And, and where do you go with the, the dyslexia ADD thing as you go through life? How do you look back on that time? How do you overcome it? Boy, you know, I, as I look back I, now, I, I didn't see it like this for a long time, but man, I see it as a, as a tremendous blessing. You know, I mean, I believe, especially with kids and I, and I talk a lot to parents, even though that's not my primary like place that I do business. But when I talk to parents that have kids with these sort of deficiencies, these the dyslexia and the ADD or whatever, I believe that every child and we were all children once. Some of us are still kind of children. Every child has a superpower. And that superpower can oftentimes be be found out based on how they don't fit. Right. So I didn't fit in class. It, I can't I can't read well. I can't read good. Um, I, my spelling is atrocious. And so that forced me to really to really focus on and, and, and develop 
my ability to speak and communicate face to face, which now to me is a competitive advantage. And I believe if I wouldn't have had those other things that held me back in those particular areas, I wouldn't have developed these other skills as as an adult that I use to number one, to provide for my family and number two, to make an impact for, on the world around me. Reminds me of Richard Branson talks about being dyslexic and he said like as a kid, I had to, I couldn't read the words on the page. So I had to sort of pull back in life and just kind of get the bigger picture of things to get context he said so like when i was a kid i would pull back and get the big picture and they called me dyslexic and now i'm an adult i pull back to get the big picture and they call me a visionary (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really true one of the things that i tell people all the time is you know the best thing that you can do for yourself is to forgive yourself for your for the weaknesses you have and double down on your strengths you know I, i think so often we do this with kids and we do this with ourselves right we we try to make ourselves into being these well rounded people we want to be pretty good at everything we want people to look at us and say you know that's a well-rounded human being, you need a well-rounded employee. We get surprised and confused when we feel sort of a little flat, (laughs) right? And we become so well-rounded. We're not really good particularly at anything. And I think our employees, I think our families, I think our friends, and I think ourselves would prefer if we weren't so rounded, we were more sharp (laughs) and more specialized in a particular skill in our our God-given gifts. Uh, where we could actually make a deeper and stronger impact on the world around us. Yeah, beautiful. So how does that look for you? What what was the, the gifts that you found that you really had to grow and expand? Yeah, so so a few a few of the gifts that I found was, num- number one, uh, just the ability to communicate uh, with, with other people. You know, my, my grandfather saw that in me pretty young. At, at 12 years old, he put me on his sales floor. He owned a furniture company in Raleigh, and I started selling. And because he he found that I could I could really easily connect with other people and my my ability to communicate with people that were older than me was was pretty advanced. It wasn't so good with people my age for for whatever reason. Um, and so just developing that, knowing like, boy, that's a strength I can continue to develop. That it helps me to pay more attention to that. And know that, you know, dyslexia is the other side of it. It's sort of the shadow of that strength. And so I can look at the dyslexia and be thankful for it and say, you know, I'm thankful to have that because if I didn't have that, I couldn't have this. And I couldn't I I wouldn't be able to focus so much on this particular thing. Um, And so, you know, that has grown into things like storytelling. Um, That's grown into things like um, being able to get being able to put pieces together and give uh, give speeches or talks um, that are that are meaningful for the audiences that I'm blessed enough to stand in front of. I want to just sort of hang on this a little bit more because uh, it's, it's a common thing. And I just wonder for a parent listening that has a kid that's, I don't know, different, quote unquote, dyslexia, ADD, how would, how should they approach that? How should they look at it and, and how can they project to their child that it's a gift and then help them experience it as a gift? You know, I, one of the things that I believe is myself as a parent, I have a five and a half year old little girl. And one of, I think the biggest and most important things I can do for my daughter as, as her dad is is to give her a strong sense of who she is and to help her to to help her to really establish that understanding, but also to double down on that. Um, and, you know, I, I gave a talk a few months ago and I had a parent come up and ask me that same exact question. And I said, you know, well, what is what is your son into? And she said, well, he loves Legos. And I said, well, help him find things that are like Legos. And for the things that aren't, let him punt them like how much does science class matter to me now that I'm, you know, 33? Well, it kind of doesn't. Like, I just needed a C. I got a D. <laughs> but but C's and D's, 
you know, uh, I guess the saying is season D's get degrees. And for the, if you're not, if you're not going into a, you know, specific field, you know, focus on the things that you're good at, because once you get out of school, the truth is, is none of that stuff that you stunk at is going to be anything that you're successful in anyways. And so if you go through school, really trying to develop who you are, the strengths that you have, and, and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean parents giving their kids eighth place trophies. That's not what I'm talking about, because when my daughter stinks at something, she knows that she stinks at it. Right. She we don't give out participation trophies. But when she's good at something, boy, do we massage that and we talk about that and we talk that up, because to, to me, there's nothing more important than self-esteem and confidence in a kid. And I think that should be one of our primary responsibilities as parents is to give our kids an appropriate level of confidence around their around their strengths and appropriate level of, of awareness around the things that they're deficient at, you know, because this 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 myth that we've been telling our, our children for so many years that you can be anything you want to be just is fundamentally untrue. You know, you just you can't. I'm, I'm six foot seven, 240 pounds. I'm not going to be a jockey in the next Kentucky Derby. I'm, I'm not going to be able to I'm not going to be able to be a horse or, or, or ride a horse in a horse race. Definitely not a horse. Yeah. I, yeah. And I can't be a horse. either. <laughs> right. But there's just some things that I'm not going to be able to do. Right. And we should tell our you know, one of the things that, that uh, a statement that I, I heard not long ago that I, I really fell in love with is that we shouldn't be trying to be um, to be something that we're not. We should be trying our best to to become more of who we already are. You know, as parents, we see that in our children. We see who they are already. We see their quirks and, and the things that they're not so good at. And we see the things that they're really great at. My responsibility is to is to focus on the things that my daughter are good, is, is really good at. And help her to understand that the opposite side of that are things that she isn't. So let's focus on the things that you are and forgive yourself for the things that you're not. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Something I'll add to that. My my brother's really good at this with his his boys, is praising effort over mm-hmm. because to a certain extent as well, like you said, what what you've been given you, you can't change. So right. praising a certain talent, well, you you were given that talent. Uh, you know, it's you didn't have a choice, <laughs> whereas right. you do have a choice how much effort you put in. And that's that, uh, I don't know if you've read the mindset book, but the difference between the fixed or the growth mindset, having a growth mindset is like, yeah, I'm just going to keep trying and I'm going to keep growing mm-hmm. even when I suck at something, you know, that the effort is really important. And so, yeah, he, he talks a lot about how he focuses on praising effort. Like his son is learning to play the guitar now. And originally he would, you know, try the guitar to start with, wasn't that good at it. So, oh shit, I got no talent in that, throw it away, mm. which is not true, right? It's just, you right. have to learn praise instead of going, oh, you're not a natural guitarist, which I'm not sure right. anyone is. Um, you go, look, hey, that's amazing. Look, you you, you, pl- you practice for an hour and look, now you can play those three chords. That's amazing. Like, look at what the practice has done and just focusing on the effort, not the talent. Yep. That's that's exactly right. And, and I think that leads into helping our kids really be understand and be comfortable with two things. And these two things I think are, are so, so important for, and, and for us as adults. So, um, the, the first thing is learning how to be bored and learning the value of boredom. Yeah, that's great. You know, we forget that with, with ourselves and our kids, right? Like we can't go to the bathroom without a cell phone because God forbid, you know, I think I heard that on your last podcast, that's right, yeah. on one of your last episodes that I thought that was so brilliant. And, and the other thing is the value of failure. Like when I look back on my greatest, like greatest learnings, it wasn't when I won a championship or, or like accomplished a goal. It was because I lost or I got, you know, life punched me in the mouth. And th- that failure really led to the next victory. Like, boy, is that, is that important? And that's something that's been a tough for me with my, with my little 
girl because she she's so competitive and she hates losing so much and trying to help her understand the value like how great it is like you lost that's awesome <laughs> like you you get to learn something today um as opposed to you know you dominated the competition and you know the only thing we can do is wait for the next you know the next thing so that you can learn something i think i think the times that we get to dominate our circumstance or our competition or whatever our goals or whatever it is it's it's only because we've we've met significant failures before them and that's the thing that we stand on where we can where we can actually make some real accomplishments and some real progress forward but without those failures man i think it's it's tough yeah yeah you're touching on something here for me because i i don't think i'm good at failure at all and I'm interested to hear some of your failures and what some of the big the big failures and learnings have been. But you know, we talked just before we came on the podcast about perfection, and that's been a struggle for me. Not so much anymore. Like I've learned to keep giving it up. And you said you've had the same the same journey, but mm-hmm. I still find myself planning and executing things so that they don't fail. You know, and I think even holding back a little bit, where instead of kind of just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of going, okay, what's the path of least resistance here that's going to ensure that I don't end up failing at all? Right. And just as I heard you talk, like that still feels quite restrictive for me. Yeah, yeah. And and I think the the big important part of that is non-fatal errors. You know, the the last thing that, that I think either one of us would suggest to anybody who would ever listen to this or to each other is to go out and just do the craziest thing you can think of. Or the most risky thing you can think of, you know, I, I, and that sort of goes back to like your comfort zone, right? I believe that our comfort zone is not somewhere we were intended or created to live in. We were not intended to live inside of that. The, our comfort zone is a place for us to go, like get sanctuary and rest. <laughs> um, but if we really want to grow, we really want to, uh, we really want to make an impact on the world around us. We have to live outside of that comfort zone, outside of the place where we you know, we're guaranteed to win or we're really comfortable or it feels safe. You know, we have to live outside of that. And then we have to be smart enough to go back inside of that at times to, to rest and to relax and to recharge so that we can continue to do our work. Um, and boy, that's that's something that I've really that I've really had to work on for myself is I can get in this comfort zone and only be in the things that I'm really good at and punt or, or, or not do the other stuff. Because one of the things that my childhood really taught me was how to fail. <laughs> I was really good at it because that's all I did. Every every semester, I would take my my Fs and my failures to my parents. You know, the teacher, none of the teachers liked me or wanted me around. And so I was really good by the time I was, you know, a teenager at, at failing. So it's not something that's been, you know, particularly a, much of a challenge for me. My challenge has been getting outside of my comfort zone and really stretching myself and continue to develop, develop areas of, of my life where I can be useful. So how does that look in practice? So you, you notice yourself, you're like, oh, shit, I've gone a couple of weeks here. I'm getting a little bit comfortable. Life feels a bit easy. Do, do you get that red flag that comes up that it's like, right, I need to I need to go and put myself out there somewhere? Yes, uh, 100%. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel really fortunate that I feel like I've done enough work so far in my time on this planet that I am uncomfortable being comfortable for very long. It, it's almost like muscle memory. You know, once once I've been comfortable for long enough, I start getting this itch of, you know, I need to do something different. I need to try something different. And usually I do that. And, and the truth is, most of the time that comes out in some sort of vulnerability. 
right? That's, that's talking about my deficiencies. That's, you know, that's having a, a challenging emotional conversation, you know, with someone that I really care about, you know, it's not always inside of a product or inside of work or, or inside of some sort of a project. You know, sometimes that comes out as something as easy as, you know, calling a, calling a family member that it's, that it's tough for me to have a, you know, a conversation that needed to happen a long time ago and having the conversation, <laughs> you know, or even just sort of checking myself mentally and emotionally and not getting in this place where I'm starting to tell stories about my circumstances where I'm both the the victim and the hero. Those those stories are the ones that, that really damage me the most. And then, you know, sometimes sometimes it, it turns out where, you know, I need to do something different or I need to start a new project or, you know, but I think I think our growth is much more dynamic than the work that we do. Sometimes the best and most important growth we have are the are the you know, seemingly simple conversations um, that we have to have with the people that we care about. So I want to check in with you just in this moment. Like, do you feel comfortable in this moment? At the moment, is there like a, a call sitting there, like a vulnerable call that you think, man, actually, I need to make that? You know, there there almost there almost always is. You know, I've, I've learned in my career that and in my life that that people very rarely connect deeply with our victories. People connect more with our vulnerabilities than they ever do with our victories. And so, you know, one of the things that I struggle with quite a bit is, you know, I'm, I'm a runner when it comes to confrontation, right? I run my behind off and my wife is the opposite. She's, she's a fighter. She's like, you know, one of, one of the things she said is, you know, like if we have a conflict, we have an issue going on. She's like, let's, let's duke it out and hug it out. You know, they're like, you're running down the street and she's yelling after you. Yeah. Let's fight. Like, let's get into it. And I'm like, whatever, let's, let's, let's like dust this thing under the rug and pretend like it never happened. And so when I do that, I start creating a story about, you know, what she thinks, what she believes, what she, you know, her, her motives and intentions. And I make myself the victim of that circumstance. And then I make myself the hero because I find an, a noble cause for, for my behavior. You know, that's something I have to check myself, you know, on a, on a daily basis, you know, and, and have to be vulnerable enough to go to my wife pretty regularly and say, Hey, I got that wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I, my behavior was, was not right. My attitude wasn't right. My, the story I told myself didn't serve you or, or didn't serve the commitment that I've made to you. And so that's, that's one that boy, that comes up for me on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly <laughs> basis. Um, and then the other one, just professionally, you know, just thinking about, you know, wanting to, wanting to be more vulnerable, you know, I've, I've got, uh, I'm a Dell Carnegie instructor. So I, I, I instruct that program, one program about every quarter It's a two month, it's a two month program. So usually I'll get a couple of months off a year. You know, it's, it's finding opportunities to become more and more vulnerable, more and more transparent, more and more open as an instructor that this sort of the gateway that gives participants permission um, to do the same thing. And, you know, it's, it's oftentimes a lot easier to to be vulnerable, to open yourself up, to tell the to tell the real the real story, the real truth about what's going on after someone else has done it. You know, I've recognized that to be true as an instructor. Um, but boy, it, it doesn't make it any easier, easier to go first. You know, going first is sort of the essence of leadership. <laughs> it's kind of what, how we identify leaders. They're the people who go first. Um, and then it, it's tough and, and you have to wonder, are they going to, are they going to receive it? Are they going to think I'm, I'm nuts? Is it going to hurt my credibility? And you know, you, you just have to say it anyway. And I've never, I've never been regretful 
of of being my most authentic self. And I've also never been comfortable with it either. And so that that sort of dynamic can can obviously make it, you know, it can it, it can make it a challenge. And you have to remember, you have to remember what the outcome's gonna be. Because if you let the resistance tell you or you let your some sort of lack of self-worth that still a little part may still live inside of you, um, it'll it'll tell you to to be the person that you think that you're supposed to be or, or that society's told you to be. And it's, that's a damaging emotional plan. Yeah. I feel like it's the one that most people live in. Like I guess in the world we live in personal development, you come across a lot of people that are trying not to live that way. But I think the reality is still most people are, they want to be comfortable. They don't want conflict. They don't want to be vulnerable. And again, it's, it's bringing up stuff for me as well. And when you said about the, you know, wanting to run from arguments, I just thought, man, I just had this really strong sense of, yeah, my family dynamic growing up was one of avoiding awkwardness at all costs, and not 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 explicitly, but just implied that any time something got awkward or a conversation got awkward, you laughed it off and changed the subject, and you just you just never allowed any conversation to drift into anything that could be awkward or embarrassing or vulnerable. And I, I just, I really have that, that switch built into me. And that was true for me as well. I mean, growing up, we had, we had a very, um, when by any means necessary way of doing conflict, um, which, right. which meant if there were conflict, it would, it would escalate until both people lost <laughs> and, and both, and both people were hurt. And there was, there was only one way to do conflict in, in my family, which was dominate you know, dominate, manipulate and win. And that caused me as an adult to be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing that with the people that I care about, the people that I love. So I did the opposite and, and tried to avoid it. Um, which is, which is the same, you know, something I wrote about a few weeks ago, which was the, the, the same, uh, the cure is never more of the disease. You know, you, you can't, you can't just do a different type of negative communication and hope to get a better result. Um, but boy, it's, it's easy for us to do that. Yeah, and I, I think I, I notice myself getting better at this, but my natural state is just to not have the difficult conversations, not be vulnerable, paper over things, smile and joke through everything. Right. And yeah, I think I'm getting better at it. It's kind of what what I asked you, but just that red flag of going, oh man, I'm just I'm not playing full out here. I'm not being vulnerable. I'm just I'm just trying to paper over things and stay comfortable. Yeah, not showing up. Yeah, not showing up. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned before about it sounded really cool to me working in your grandfather's furniture shop. Yeah. What were you some of your experiences there? Because I know for me, selling, my dad was a salesman and mm-hmm. I think selling is an amazing skill. And you talk about uh, different skills that kids should learn. Well, that's one that only a small percentage of people ever learn, but it's so valuable selling yourself to your partner, selling yes. yourself in an interview, selling products at a business. It's something that not many people learn, but I imagine you got to learn that pretty well. I, I did. I did. I was I was really blessed to have that to have my, my grandfather as a mentor to me in that way, um, you know, primarily because as, as at the age of 12, getting getting placed in front of, you know, adults who are who are spending pretty decent amounts of money. Um, you know, really put me in a position to see myself differently and see my contribution or my, my potential contribution to the world much differently. Um, and so, you know, my, my grandfather was, was incredible, absolutely incredible in terms of the way he taught me about sales and, and, and retail in general. There was one particular time that I remember where he took me to the Salvation Army really early on a Friday morning. And he gave me $300 and $20 bills. And he told me to go inside and buy as much furniture 
as I possibly could. Wow. And so I, I went in and I started, I thought, so I think I thought this was like a lesson on like negotiation, right? Yeah. So I start, you know, you know, you know, bartering and like trying to figure out like if, you know, what discounts I can get. And if I buy that, we, we throw in this and can you do better on this price? Right. And I'm going back and forth with the manager. My grandfather's kind of off to the side watching me and I got an absolute ton of furniture for $300 that day. And we took it and we loaded it up in his, in his furniture truck. And we, we, we drove, we're driving back down toward his furniture store. And he says, you know, he says, he says, you did really good. And today he said, is going to be your opportunity to learn what business and retail is really all about. And so I'm not really sure what he's talking about until we pull up, we pull up in front of the store and in front of the store, he had sort of a grassy patch right on the other side of the parking lot. And we start unloading this furniture. And he says, today you're going to sell all this furniture out front. And he said, so you need to price it. So he reaches in his front pocket, which is where he always kept price tags. And he hands me this, this stack of price tags. And he goes, how are, how are you going to price all this stuff? And I said, well, you know, you, you taught me if you buy something for a dollar, you should try to sell it for $2. That's, you know, that's retail, right? And he says, okay, that's, that's pretty good. He said, but that's only retail. He said, I want you to price it based on value. How do you price it based on value? And I said, like, Granddaddy, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. You know, maybe you're getting a little delusional. Uh, and he says, he says, the he says, retail is you buy something for a dollar and you sell it for two dollars. Value is you buy something for a dollar, and then you find someone who's willing to pay three dollars for it, and you only charge them two dollars. And I said, oh, well, that sounds great. Where are those people? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, those people will show up based on the experience you give them. So your experience is the, the experience you give the people around you is the extra dollar. And that's the value. And, you know, he taught me from a young age, the, the value that you bring as a human being to, to the business transaction and just to relationships in general. You know, I, I, from, from that time on, I had a really keen sense that, you know, I could have the same price, I could have the same product, I could have the same terms of financing and delivery, and people would buy it from me rather than going down the street. Many times, I would have a higher price or slower delivery or, or not as competitive financing, and they would still buy it from me um, because I cared about the human being first. And, you know, we forget when we're trying to sell stuff, a lot of times we forget what we're really there for. We're not there to talk about our expertise. We're not there to really sell our product. We're, we're really a matchmaker. And our job is to get out of the way and help and stand on the side of the customer and help them to really have a clear understanding for what they want, right? Because sometimes, as, as you know, people don't always know what they want when they're trying to, when they're, when they're out to buy something. It's like the thing. Well, they think they want one thing, but really they want something. Well, else. they think they want something. Right. And there's a difference between a want and a need. Right. They think that they want something when they really maybe need something else. You know, it reminds me of, uh, of a Henry Ford quote where a, a journalist asked Henry Ford um, about, you know, did how many, you know, did he did he ask or do any like surveys to figure out what people wanted out of the first automobile that he created? And his his comment was, if I would have given people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. Yeah. You know. And, and, and our responsibility as, as salespeople or, or marketers is to help people understand what they really need and then help them understand why. And then, I'll, and then get the heck out of the way and let them make an adult decision about whether that's a good or a bad thing for them. Um, and I think we forget that. And we fall into this trap of trying to manipulate people or trying to 
push people toward things that are our preference when my preference really makes very little difference, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to sell something. And so th- those experiences, those are just some of the things that I sort of got out of the experience of being able to be on the sales floor at a young age and, you know, kind of continue that because tr- look, we're all in sales, whether we're selling a product, a service or ourselves, we're, we're, we are trying to match what we have to offer to something or to someone um, that that can that can really get a tremendous value out of it. It's not just it's not just business. Yeah, there's a perception that when you use the word sales, it's way well, actually for me, it's the guy knocking at the door trying to sell vacuum cleaners, right. and you don't need a, another fucking vacuum cleaner. But this guy's got a nice suit on, and he's going, "Man, you got to try this thing for just three ninety nine, and here's the payment plan." And all of a sudden, you've got a vacuum cleaner that you never use. <laughs> Um, right, right. But I love redefining what sales is as, as being, well, I have a product. Let me speak to you and see what your needs are. And if what I have can match your needs, then right. I would like to sell that to you, right. which is different to this perception of just having a whole lot of junk that nobody needs and being sleazy and trying to convince people to take that away from you, to buy that off you. Right. Um, so the family business, is that, is that the family business that you ended up taking over? Was it the furniture business or is that something different? No, it's, it's the same business. Yeah, so I, I took the I took the family business over right after college. So um, your granddad was really training you. He wasn't trying to give you a lesson. He was training you to take <laughs> over the business. He, he was. It, yeah, in, in many ways, in many ways he was. I think at that age, I think he was just trying his best to sort of call out anything that was positive. Um, it, it, when I was, when I was a lot younger and as I sort of grew up and sort of, sort of started to, to enjoy the, the business and enjoy, you know, the, the process, he started to maybe see the, the potential once I got out of college and the whole college experience is a whole nother part of the story that I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll track back toward. Um, but I took over the company in 2000 and, uh, I guess it was 2007. My grandfather passed away in 2010. By, by that time, the, the company was solely 100% um, mine, well, mine and my wife's. And the property was owned by the, my grandfather's estate. And, you know, they, they say that sometimes family business can be an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp. <laughs> um, and, and, that, and that's what I, that's what it sort of turned out being. My, my grandfather passing away really, really ended up putting people at odds in our, in our family and, you know, me owning the business and them owning the estate, um, really wasn't a good fit. And so, you know, I, I knew that our, our business needed to change. You know, we, we had traditionally served really the, the, the farming community in Southern Raleigh, um, and, and, and South of that, those farms were being sold at that time to developers. The developers were building pretty nice, um, housing developments and the people moving in were people from the Northeast of the United States, which had a significantly different taste in, you know, goods than, uh, than the farmers did. And we sort of started going backwards really quickly. And so I knew that we needed to make some changes. The family didn't feel like we needed to, they wanted the company to sort of stand in memorial to my grandfather's legacy. Um, and that just wasn't possible. So my wife and I decided to leave and the sentiment was kind of, was sort of like, if you want to leave the family, or if you want to leave the business, got to leave the family. And so there was some real turmoil around there and wasn't able to run any sort of like retirement or going out of business sales or anything like that. And we, we, for all intents and purposes, walked away. We, we wrote a check to leave 2011. We left the business, um, really in, in, in pretty dire straits and had some shame around that. And some, all of my family for the most part, um, the relationships were strained to the point where we weren't we weren't speaking with them. October of 2011, in a in a 30 day period, we walked away from our business 
my wife quit her job and we had our first child all in 30 days. And so let's let's just say there were some, you know, we were eating like salt and pepper sandwiches <laughs> and like noodles. Um, but, you know, we we sort of stuck we stuck through that and we knew that we had there were bigger and better things for us to do. And I had a purpose outside of the four walls of the business. And um, really, the only person that believed in me or believed in that was was my wife. And, uh, and boy, was it, was it hard? And it took us, you know, I I promised her when we left, I would have us back established in two years and 18 months to the day. Um, we had, we had fully replaced our income, um, and we're, we're, we were on a much better, uh, you know, much better path, much happier. Um, and, and we've really been reaping the benefits ever since. And, uh, but boy, that was, that was a tough call. You know, we didn't really speak to my family for three years and, you know, they, they didn't get the, the privilege or pleasure of being able to, to, to see their first grandchild grow up or, you know, their niece. And, you know, it was, it was a really tough decision. And sometimes the right decision is the toughest one. Um, and boy, it was not, not a lot of fun at all. (laughs) Um, but now, but now you look back and you think like, gosh, I am not scared of very many things. You know, I've, I've made some transitions in my career since then. Um, as a, here's, here's an example. So a couple of years after that, I got laid off from a position that, that I had. I got laid off on a Friday. Um, I had to go up to the corporate headquarters, which is like two, two hours away. I, went, I drove all the way up there just to get laid off. And I called my wife in the parking lot and I was so excited that I got laid off and not not because I hated the job. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't my favorite thing that I was doing. I didn't feel like it was in goal for me, Um, but I was so excited to have the opportunity to be challenged again because I knew that I had been through something much harder and this was not nearly as challenging. And so I had a two hour drive back um, on that Friday. And by the time I got home, I had six um, interviews lined up for the next Monday because of the way I managed that. And, and because I had, I had been through something a lot harder, <laughs> it just didn't impact me the same way. And, you know, I think we, we forget the value of the, of hard times and we forget the value of poverty in some ways, you know, it, through, through seasons of our life or disappointment or, or strained relationships. And we, we forget, and we can either choose, you know, that, that they, that they strengthen us or, you know, we can fall victim to them and, and let them be the reason that, that we don't, that we're not more successful later. So much gold and those stories, I don't really know where to start, but the, um, the experience of well, doing the work, you know, what we call the work, like going through these tough times and then figuring it out and growing through it. Someone said to me the last couple of days, like you can't, you can tell someone that's done the work, you know, right. that you can't hide from that. that. That's the experience, right, of having been through things, survived, worked through it, worked on yourself, grown emotionally, spiritually, and then to the point when you get laid off your job, and you go, man, I'm so excited. Like you, you bring this new context to it, right? Where you go, man, right. I'm excited. Think of the possibilities. Clearly there's a there's something greater out there for me. This has happened for a reason. I'm going to lean into it. I love that. So I just wanted to capture that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think another part of that is it, it, we just know that it doesn't put an end to us. You know, one of the things, one of your past guests, Jason, and a, and a good friend of mine, Jason Goldberg, you know, he told me one time, and he, he may he may have stolen this from someone someone else. So if you know where it is, we can who said it, we can cite it. But you know, he said sometimes you know it's like you you walk out in the garage at, late at night and you think you see a a snake, you know, hanging from the hanging from the rafter. So you turn around and you you run back inside and you're terrified because you're terrified of the snake. Um, but then the next morning you walk out and you realize it was just a water hose. And you know, the next time you go out there. It's not going to surprise you and it's not going to scare you because it's just a water hose, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that awareness that, you know, 
you if if you're here and if you can hear this, that means you've made it through, you know, some significant stuff. And why should you get afraid or or why should you get completely stressed out for something you know you're going to get through and likely going to be better, um, you know, better for in the future? Most people that are listening to this are those type of people, so they'll be nodding their head as they listen to you, going, "Yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. just just yeah. <laughs> yeah, keep leaning into your edge." But for for someone that's maybe. Um, struggles with self-confidence or you know mm-hmm. is still kind of a little bit paralyzed by that fear that still thinks the garden hose is a snake um, maybe you can use the context of leaving the business I'm sure that took a long time to get the you know, the balls to go and make that call what's the point how do you get past that line just turn the lights on you just do it you mm-hmm. do the scary stuff you know you you even though you think it's a snake you you still walk up close enough to it to figure out if it is or not <laughs> you know you might even need to grab it i mean I, I had no idea if i could get our get our family back in order in 2 years i i knew that i knew that i had a better chance of doing that and failing because i was being authentic to myself and where i felt like i needed to go than than being successful somewhere that i would be miserable and and i think i think that's the big thing the big thing is knowing that you know, confidence isn't something you decide. Confident, you have to earn confidence. And I can be as confident, I can be as confident as I want about being able to compete in a, you know, in a professional basketball game. But the truth is, is I can say whatever I want to say, but if they put a jersey on me and put me out at center court, I'm going to be terrified because I haven't earned the right to be confident about in real life about that thing. You know, as a, as a, as a college athlete, as I trained, as I did the hard stuff, as I did the workouts, as I, as I worked, as I stood blood, sweat and tears, you know, when you've earned the right, you stand out in the middle of the court and you're not afraid anymore. And, and that's sort of how it's been for me with, with business. I've, I've earned the right to, to be confident in my, in my professional abilities because I've done the hard and scary stuff and I've failed enough to know that it's not going to kill me. And my self-worth isn't tied to the amount of money that I make or, or the position that I have or, you know, my self-worth is tied to how I feel between the time I lay my head on the pillow and the time I fall asleep. That's, that's the thing that, that matters to me. How, do, how, do, how well can I sleep at night? <laughs> not, not what do I have? Just say that one again because that was a really, that's a beautiful phrase you just said. Can you just say that one again? I have no idea what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, so, so I just this is a bit about putting the pillow on the head. That's that's the first, maybe the first. That's the first time I've ever said it. So I'll try to do it again. <laughs> so, so, so my self worth really comes um, not not in accomplishments or what happens outside. It really comes between the time that I lay my head on the pillow and I fall asleep. You know how how well can I sleep, um, knowing you know how I'm showing up in the world and how authentic I am. And you know I, I lived a lot of my life not being that thing. I've, I've come to realize more and more the, the, how important it is to earn the right. And I say that a lot. That's one of the things that comes from uh, Dale Carnegie himself. You know, he talks about earning, earning the right, earning the right to, to give a talk, earning the right, um, to, to, to be confident in a particular skill. And the more we earn the right, the only way you earn the right in life is to do life. <laughs> you know, you got to do the scary stuff. You got to do the stuff that kind of sucks and you got to fail and you got to lean into it and you got to, you know, you got to dust yourself off and stand up, shrug your shoulders and say, I screwed that one up. <laughs> but the, the more we, the more we try to posture and put on these masks and this, our fake self and, and, and try to go through life, like we've got it all together, the, the more unhappy we're going to be and the less together we're going to have it. Yeah, that's right. And you look at someone like you, a speaker, you've done a TEDx talk and someone would look at you and go, man, how's that guy so confident on stage? Like, how is he able just to communicate so well? 
I'm guessing it's just from doing it badly so many times and putting yourself out there and putting yourself into scary positions and earning the right to be on a TED stage. Yeah, there's there's a there's a there's an equal pull from from both directions for me. One one is a confidence that I've done it before, and the second is you know I I gosh I've done it so badly. You know I've <laughs> I've recorded I've recorded almost every talk and presentation I've ever given in my entire career, so I can go back and listen to some of the garbage that I that I did in two thousand uh, two thousand eleven two thousand twelve and. You know, it's it's humbling, <laughs> you know, like I, I still get a pit in my stomach thinking about some of the terrible, terrible presentations or terrible talks that I've given in my life. And, you know, the other part that 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 my confidence really comes from is I equally care. I, I care so deeply about the impact that I make on other people and the message and how they receive the message that I send. I care so much. And at the same time, I couldn't care less. It's a paradox. It's a complete paradox and it's a complete contradiction. Um, and, and I don't, I, I really don't. I, it does not matter to me what people think or how they, or how they receive the work that I'm trying to do. And I really hope that they receive it well. And I really hope it makes an impact. <laughs> what is your, what is your why? You're a, um, a speaker, do some coaching, you, the Dale Carnegie work. Why do mm-hmm. you do all this? You know, I was, I was given a gift. I was given a gift as a sophomore in college, uh, and I talk about this in my in my TEDx talk. But you know, I was I was really a victim, and and Sarah, my college um, academic advisor, pointed it out correctly when she told me that I was a victim of my own thinking, and she she made an investment in me that was different than the investment that any educator or or any other adult had ever made. You know, she, there were plenty of there were plenty of adults, there were plenty of teachers, there were plenty of you know, authorities in my life that had gotten mad at me because of my behavior or my outcomes, you know, like they'd be mad because I didn't come to class or I didn't do my homework or I failed a test or I was acting up or I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. You know, Sarah was one of the, one of the first people, um, that, that wasn't angry at me because of my results. She was angry at me because of the way I thought about myself. And um, that investment that she made in me and the, and the process that she took me through really changed my mind and put me on the path that I'm still on today. Um, that's really my purpose. My purpose is to replicate that. Um, my purpose is to help people understand their innate greatness and to help people double down on their strengths and forgive themselves for their weaknesses. And I think the more we do that, the richer, the fuller, um, the more fulfilled we'll be and the easier it is to find you know, why we're actually here in the first place. Yeah. And can you give us some, some practices? Obviously the best thing is to go and work with you one-on-one, but can you give us some practices on self-forgiveness and self-awareness that have been effective for you? Yes. One, one of the most important things, and this is something that I tell myself every day is nothing's personal. Nothing, absolutely nothing is personal. Everything that happens, everything that, that anything that someone gives me, um, whether it's negative or positive is a manifestation of who they are, um, not a reflection of who I am. So how that, how that translates is I can completely let go of, of judgment from other people, from expectations of other people, um, and just show up and be who I'm supposed to be. I I lived a lot of my life caring about who I, how I should look, how I should be, um, how I should act, how I should talk. And a lot of that stuff really, really, really went away. And now I can think in terms of how can I make the greatest impact? And, 
and 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 how can I be more of who I'm already or who I was actually all you know who I was born to be? So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is to get really clear about what you're absolutely best at. You know, I, I was given a superpower. My superpower ended up being the ability to connect with people and the the ability to storytell. And that understanding has allowed me to let go of anything that I'm not good at. You know, like one thing that stretches me a lot is writing. Like I still write blog posts and I am absolutely horrendous, terrible. And I don't know that I've ever written a blog post that did not have multiple grammatical errors. <laughs> um, I just I, and and I don't care, and I'll still post it, and people will 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 comment or send me messages, and I'll say thank you. Um, I figured there was one or two in there, and then I don't change them <laughs> awesome. because I've. I've got better things. I've got more important things to do. And to some people, grammar is really important. And to those people, I say that's awesome. Their emails are their emails are better than mine. Their blog posts are better than mine. But I've got a I've got a message. I've got I've got a purpose. I've got a reason to be here. You know, I had a mentor tell me once the greatest way to find your purpose is is to is to decide um, one of two things: either the thing that that you more than anything in this world want to stand for or the thing, the one thing more than anything you want to stand against. And inside of one of those two things is your purpose for being here. And so you need to go do that. And so that's what I've done. You know, my, my purpose is to, is to help people forgive themselves for their weaknesses and double down on their strengths. And for me, it's a, it's a daily, it's a daily practice is, you know, and, and I'm only teaching the things that, that I'm experiencing and going through, <laughs> you know, when I'm writing a blog post and I, it's look, sounds like I'm writing to someone, I'm, I, that's a journal entry. <laughs> I'm telling, I'm telling myself because I just screwed that up or I just did that wrong or I just learned from that or I had a failure in that area. And it's one of those things that, that, we have to we have to grow our confidence by by earning the right. And so in a in a coaching situation, that means putting down on paper, on purpose, more of who we want to be, you know, like like an, an example would be um, here's an example for, for me personally. I want I want to um, take less things personal in my marriage when uh, I, I want to read into things less. And so. That means that I, for a specific amount of time, whether that's a week or two weeks or two days, I, I never, I don't have long goals. My goals are very, very short, just like my attention span. And so for me, if I want to, if I want to get better, uh, get better at that, then for, for two weeks, I am super deliberate about telling my story. So when something happens and, and I think, you know, I want to withdraw in, in my marriage, I have to immediately go to my wife as challenging and as frustrating and as um, scary as it may be and say to her, hey, I'm telling myself a story about this. This is what I see happening. Please help me um, understand the truth of this moment, (laughs) because if I don't, then I'll tell myself a story. And so once I do that, I do the hard work, I do the scary thing, I do the thing that, that is vulnerable, then I've earned the right to do more of that. And until we do the first steps and until we put ourselves out there, we never earn the right to do more of it. That's beautiful. And it's the thing I, we talk about a lot on the podcast is that the work never stops. And I right. just love that you just model that again. It's just a, a constant reminder for people because people that are just getting into this work, they're like, where's the quick fix? 
Right. Like I, I'm going to go and do Doug's uh, course, the Dale Carnegie course, and I'm done that. Like I'll be fixed and then I'll, right. I'll never have another problem. So just right. knowing that you constantly have to confront that self-forgiveness and self-awareness is a daily practice. Yeah. And how do you, you, when you talk about your gifts being uh, connecting with people and storytelling, how does, in practice, how does that look for you in terms of analyzing opportunities, finding ways to bring that gift into the world? How do you convert that into action? Sure. So I'm, I'm constantly asking myself this question in every scenario. How is this like? <laughs> how is this like? And trying to make connections between what I'm experiencing and, 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 a, and, a, and a principle to live by or something else that happened. And so I end up telling a ton of stories about my daughter when I give talks because what I find is parenting her gives me some really, really deep understanding of the world, really deep understanding of my own humanity, really deep an understanding of, of human nature. And so if I'm paying attention and I'm asking myself, how is this experience I had with my wife or my daughter like something else? Um, it, it allows me to really start putting those pieces together. And then I, and then I layer that on top of my ability to tell a story and to really paint a picture in, in, in people's minds. Um, and that, and that's the thing that, that's the thing that helps me sort of spread my message. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really by nature, sort of a connector. Like I, I see the connections between seemingly unconnected things. Um, like I, I'll give you an example. I, I gave a talk last week and I told this story about taking, taking a long run. It was a long run for me. It wasn't not particularly long. It's about five miles, but that's super long for me. And I was running along the road where my wife drives down to go pick up my daughter from preschool. And so I knew she was coming soon. So I was sort of looking out for her, you know, and I was, I was running, I was, you know, I was trying to keep my shoulders back and my head up to look <laughs> strong, even though I was toward the end of my run. And I saw, I saw her SUV coming. And as, as I got this like immediate idea to, to, to use this as an opportunity to demonstrate publicly like my, my undying love and affection for her, right? <laughs> I, could, I, I could give her a public demonstration right here. So I'm running as, as she gets a little closer, I start sort of sidestepping and like with both hands, like blowing kisses and like, like pr almost prancing. Like it's, it was really kind of just being silly, you know, um, and just out in public and, you know, it was a busy street. Well, uh, Nathan, it wasn't my wife <laughs> and, and I was mortified. It was just like, it was just like older dude with like this big burly beard and his eyes were like as big as like watermelons because looking at me like, why is this guy, this six, seven guy running down the road blowing these kisses, right? And so the, the point of that story to me was it's not about you. You know, that, that man laid down that night in his bed. And probably thought to himself, what did I do that made that person behave that way? And we ask ourselves that question about other people all the time. What is it that I did or, or why would they treat me that, that way? And the truth was, is my behavior had nothing to do with that guy. <laughs> my behavior had everything to do with what was going on inside of me, which caused me to behave that way and sort of manifest that thing to, that to him. But it had nothing to do with him. And if we go through our lives knowing that the way people um, 
The things people give to us, whether positive or negative, have nothing to do with us. They're not personal. They're just a manifestation of who that person is. And some sometimes we love people for that manifestation, and sometimes we don't care for people <laughs> that, that that give us give us a negative manifestation. And and the more the more we can remember that. I think the more the more solid and centered we can be as human beings and focus on the things that are actually important and not on, you know, things that never existed in the first place. It's a choice, isn't it? It's a choice to make it about you. A hundred percent. And it's, and it's a, a hard choice. Yeah, it is. I notice I, I've been making fun of myself lately because <laughs> in this exact thing, I'll be talking to someone and I'll, I'll start getting af- offended. I don't really get offended, mm-hmm. but, you know, I'll... I'll think like, oh, that's weird. I wonder why they did that towards me. And now right. I catch myself and I go, hey, I'm just choosing to make this about me. Can you explain why right. you did that to me? You know, and I'll just right. try and call it out and make fun of it because I'm just really catching myself doing this a lot lately. Right, right. And, and that's easy to do, you know. And, and, it's, and it's, easy, it's also easy to, to think that we've got it all figured out. Even though we would all raise our hands and say, I don't have it figured out, um, we, don't, we don't always live that way. You know, uh, here's, here's an example. I was flying back from, uh, from New Orleans last week, and I came across a, a gentleman. Um, his name's Reverend Barber. He's, he's head of the um, uh, Democratic, sort of national, uh, Democratic Convention in, uh, in the North Carolina area. Very polarizing figure. He had he's he's very sort of left wing politically, um, and I have a a big part of my uh, my friends on social media are very very conservative, very right wing, and and then I have you know a, a certain amount that are that are that are more that are more liberal, and I saw Reverend Barber there, and there's there's a lot of things that ideologically we don't agree on. And I saw that as a really cool opportunity to have a conversation with someone that believed a lot of things that differently than the way I believe them. And so I approached him and I introduced him and I did something that I, that I think terrifies some of my conservative friends, which was I started by complimenting him. And the thing I complimented him on was, was how passionately he pursues the things he believes in. And I don't have to agree with those things, but boy, I can, I can learn from the passion that he has. You know, and so we ended up having like a 20 minute, this beautiful 20 minute conversation um, about different beliefs and how, you know, we were both pretty sure that God was not a Republican or a Democrat, <laughs> you know, Important and, to remember. And it, yeah. And he was the most he was the most kind. He was the most thoughtful. I mean, one of the one of the greatest just like happenstance conversations that I've had in a really long time. And he gave me a cell phone number <laughs> and we took a picture together and I posted the picture on on my uh, on my Facebook page and immediately you know multiple people started saying like why would you why would you take a picture with him and it it made me think about how how easy it is for us to fall into this trap to think that the people we should spend time with are the people that we believe the same as um you know it's it's one of the here's uh, one of the quotes that that Dale Carnegie uses he said um and I and I, I love this especially as it pertains to relationships he said, if, if two people always agree, one of them is unnecessary. And it reminds me of how important it is to have people that are completely different than me in my life because they help shine a light on the things that I need work on <laughs> and the things that I haven't gotten all figured out. Because, boy, I try really hard to get it right. And whether it's politically or spiritually or relationally, I get a lot wrong. 
And if I don't have people that believe different things and are help me see a different perspective, I can never hope to be, you know, the, 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 the best human being that, that, that I have the possibility to be. Yes. Yeah, this interesting dynamic you have in, in the States and, you know, I know it's a hot topic at the moment and I guess we don't, we don't have to go to, to politics too much. It's not a big thing in New Zealand where I come from. Politics is right. pretty centrist and not, you know, not a big deal generally, I should say. Right. But I notice over here, like everybody's got their arguments so polished. Like, yes, you know, Democrats got all your arguments, polished Republican, everything, you know, you have an answer for everything you can. Right. Yeah. And so this, how, how do you deal with that? Like you just gave a beautiful example of how you listen to the opposing view and you go, okay, well, I don't have to agree with that, but I still want to understand it. Um, right. And how do you not just roll out the old arguments and just but really miss the point? They don't matter. Because I, I know that I've never changed anyone's mind about any about anything. <laughs> never, never one time. The only time people change their mind is when they decide to change their mind. And I cannot do and that and facts make no difference either. Because if facts made the difference, then we would all believe the same things. But it's the same reason why seventeen hundred thousand different different types of 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 people that call the the, the Bible their their holy text believe different things. You know, even even within Christianity, right? You have all of these folks that can read the same exact thing and, and and pull out a completely different meaning from it. And so, just because something there's there's a fact or there's a law or there's a there's a holy scripture um, about a thing doesn't mean that people are going to agree. And me me pulling back the curtain and saying, "No, you're wrong. Here's the proof." You know, another thing Mr. Carnegie said is, um, "A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still." <laughs> Meaning, if if you dominate someone, even if they have to say you're right. You're still going to lose their goodwill, and you're still going to, and you're going to still, and you're going to forfeit any any opportunity to to speak into their life or to have to have any sort of positive influence. And so the the way that the way that I keep myself from that is, gosh, I just know that I'm not about to change anybody's mind. And the the best way for me to have influence on the people around me is to openly. And humbly <laughs> and um, with all authenticity, be willing to share what I stand for and what I believe in um, and to allow them to do the same thing. And if I treat them the way that 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 I say that I believe people should be treated, then maybe some people will change their mind as a result of my example, but never as a result of my argument. And I mean, what would the world look like if we could all live like that? different and and my life would look different if i live like that all the time (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know i I don't i try (laughs) i try um i i do more than i did before and hopefully i i will more in the future um and it's it's a it's a it's a daily challenge because i get the same frustration i get i get irritated when i think someone believes something this ridiculous you know but i i know that I know that I'm 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 not going to change them. They're going to they're the, they're the only people that have the authority to change them. I want to shift gears a little bit. You've mentioned your wife quite a bit and and the yeah. the, the learnings you've had in your relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me what she means to you. Literally everything. She is she is the absolute greatest. You know, I I call her my crown. Um because she she really is. You know, she is exactly opposite of me in every way shape and form. And she's my balance. Uh, w- without without her influence on my life, um, I, I don't I don't see how I could how I could be where I am, or or where I hope to be in the future. 
Um, she's had such a dramatic impact um, because she's she's called my hand and she doesn't let me BS. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and she she has a way of 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 pulling me back. I'm, I'm an extremely sort of futuristic visionary, big picture. I see what what can be. And she's she's all about the details. And so that that opposite pull um, causes quite a bit of of opportunity for conflict in our marriage. Um, and, you know, looking at that, you know, as as we've been together in September, a decade, 10 years, um, I see the impact that that's had not only not only on, on our success, but on our happiness, on on our on our daughter, you know, because we, we can sit down and have a conversation about our daughter and be at completely opposite places and, and finding the, the right spot. You know, uh, like it, it goes back to what I said, uh, the, the quote that I that I shared a few seconds ago, which was if two people um, always agree, one of them is unnecessary. And there are very few times that one of us is unnecessary <laughs> because because we oftentimes have a very different um, outlook. And, um, and, and I think people give up on that too easy, you know, like we, we, we're, we're with someone until the, until the shiny newness wears off. And then we, and then we think, well, gosh, they're, they think differently than me. They believe differently than me. They want different things than me. So we, we, you know, we, we leave the relationship and start a new one and we never get into the depth that, that is that is that important type of conflict. Cause you know, I, I believe that conflict is the price we pay for healthy and meaningful relationships. You know, I, I would say that you, you, I mean, you likely don't have any really close friends that you've never had some pretty significant conflict with. Sure. We don't, we don't get close to people without, without conflict. And there's a, there's a positive and a negative type of conflict. And we've had to learn how to fight um, because like I said, she's a, she's a duke it out and hug it out. <laughs> and I'm very much a, you know, let's, let's just, let's just act like that didn't happen. <laughs> and so I've, I've had to become more aggressive and she's had to become a little slower, um, in, in the way that, that we deal with, with conflict and give me a little more space. And she made every once in a while need to give me an hour or two to kind of go get by myself and get my, get my, get my, get my thoughts together and, and get my story straight. But, um, you know, I, so for those people, like there's people out there that are, uh, you know, trying to find their, their soulmate, mm-hmm. you would say, don't look for someone that agrees with you all the time. Don't shy away from conflict or someone that maybe you're opposite and maybe pushes your buttons in that search. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And, you know, I'm certainly not advocating that you should marry someone that pisses you off. <laughs> like that's, that's not what I'm saying. Um, wh- you know, what I am saying though, is that is that oftentimes the perfect match doesn't look like the perfect match. We're the, we're the perfect match because we fundamentally fundamentally believe the same things about life, um, and we have we have a we have a sort of united purpose and place that we want to be. You know, we want to we want to be as as helpful as we can to people around us. We want to we want to raise um, kids that love God and that that have a strong sense of who they are. Um, and, and are, are able to, um, are able, are able to, to, to successfully and happily get through this thing we call life. And, uh, you know, those, our core principles really line up. And for me, that was the most important part. And the truth is, man, like I, a lot of it is just, I got lucky. I just got lucky. You know, we, we met in college. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no 
business picking a life partner. You know, like we so you've grown no an clue. amazing relationship. You've you've of you've course. grown at this point. Of course. And this like this idea that there's one person, there's only one person for you out there, I think is completely baloney. You know, my wife could have could have married tons of people that would have been, you know, great partners for her. And I'm sure that I could have married other people. And, you know, the the difference is, is that we didn't sign a contract when we got married. You know, we made a covenant to each other. And my goal is is her, you know, and my focus is her happiness and her focus is my happiness. And sometimes we get that wrong and, and we focus on, on our own thing. Um, and we're not perfect at, at, at that, but, but we know that we're in this, like we're in this and it's not, that's not, that's something that won't change. And, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously not always, you, you can't, I can't apply that to everyone, right? You just can't because, you know, this is a different conversation when you start talking about things like abuse or, um, you know, whether, whether physical or emotional, you know, that that's a different thing. And that's not what I'm talking about. Um, because just because you've made a commitment or a covenant to someone doesn't mean you always have to stay there. There are, there are unhealthy, um, covenants <laughs> that, that should be, that should be broken. Um, but as as it pertains to the woman that I married, um, boy, I, I I don't I can't I can't think of a of a bigger blessing that I've had. Um, and putting her first and most important in my life is the best thing that I can do. And if I'm not serving that relationship, I really have a hard time serving any others. And that includes my my daughter. Beautiful. Thank you for that. We've got a couple of minutes left here, and. The question I always ask everyone is, do you have a dark side uh, there that you've had to learn to embrace? And if you do, what is it for you? I do. I do. Um, there's there's a lot of things. I know. I know. I knew this question was coming, and I've tried really hard to not think about it um, because I wanted to give you the most authentic answer that I possibly could. And, and a couple of things are sort of coming up for me in terms of in terms of dark side. You know, I've I've got a I've got a lot of them. <laughs> So I don't know how many sides, dark sides. Dark sides you can have. You know, one of, one of the things that 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 has been a challenge for me and really works against my um, uh, my contribution is I've I've always had this strange like spirit of secrecy, and this is something that I sort of grew up with, right? And and the spirit of secrecy has caused me to sort of go inside or to keep secrets, and that's the way that I felt sort of authority, you know, in my life. And, you know, I've, I've had to really fight against that and really to open myself up. And as I have, um, that, that sort of dark side has, has also created a pretty significant level of selfishness and, um, inside of me. And sometimes that comes out and looks really nice, right? Like it looks really nice when I, when I, do something to help someone or, or I, I coach someone and don't charge them. Right. And it's easy for people to look at that and say, boy, he's, he's a really, look, look how great of a guy he is. And the truth is, is a lot of it selfish (laughs) because a lot of it, I'm, I'm satisfying something in myself um, because it makes me feel good. And so I'm focused, I focus a lot of times more on and more than I'd like to on, you know, how, how am I going to feel because of this versus what the impact is going to be for the other person? Um, and that's not something I really like about myself because no one likes to feel like they're selfish. Um, but when I, when I really take a close look 
at why I do some of the things I do, a lot of times it maps back to it's something I'm trying to do for myself. And, and I, don't, I don't love that, um, but I also know that it exists. And I guess it's, it's probably quite a fine line too, like, you know, when you're doing that or when you're not. Yeah, and, and it's not something that other people can see, and that's the challenge because it's hard to be accountable to that. I can only be sort of accountable to myself, you know, for, for that thing. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't love it. And th- those are the things that, that make my, the time that I lay my head down and the time that I fall asleep a little bit longer sometimes. Cause I, I have to really check my motives. Why, why am I doing this? Why did I do that? You know, why did I go out of my way for that thing? Was it really to do the thing that I say that I'm doing or was it something, was it something that wasn't as, um, wasn't as pretty. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing yeah. that in the moment as well. I really appreciate that, uh, vulnerability and the honesty. It's been such a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed this so much and I've got so much out of this myself. You've brought up some things for me to think about as well. Where can people find you? I'll put a link to your um, TED talk, to your website in the show notes, but, uh, if people want to find you, what's the best way to find you and get in touch with you? So pretty much anywhere online, I'm Doug Stewart 919. Um, the funnest place to follow me is Snap Snapchat. That's where I'm I'm having the, the most fun right now. Cool. Um, but then you know Facebook, Twitter, all the other miscellaneous, and then Doug Stewart 919. My website. Beautiful, and your website is beautiful. I said that before we came on, but your website just as a to me, it was a real expression of you. The videos are great. Um, the blog posts with all the grammatical errors <laughs> still look good. <laughs> and, uh, there's so much value and so much free content on there. So I want to push people towards that if they want to learn more about you or uh, self awareness, self forgiveness, how to disrupt negative thought patterns, and all the stuff that you're the expert in. Yeah. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on, Doug. It's been a pleasure. And I hope you'll come on again and um, we can continue the conversation. Absolutely, man. Thank you for the opportunity. And, and, I, and I also want to just tell you, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's, it's meaningful work, it's powerful work, and it's really making a difference. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Thanks, Doug. Yep. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Doug Stewart. I hope you enjoyed that one. You can reach out to Doug through his website, DougStewart919.com. Check out his TEDx talk. It's called Five and a Half Mentors on YouTube or the TED website. And I'd love it if you could share this around, give it a like on Facebook so we can get some other people listening to this damn show. And that would be awesome. I love you guys forever. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll see you next week for episode 18 of the Nathan Seawood Show. That was the Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. 